Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Welcome to Ivy's First Fruit Sunday. I'm excited that God's going to speak to us and I'm praying that each one of us is going to be moved by him to do something great today. 2,500 years ago, a civic leader of Jewish background serving the emperor in Persia was called by God to move and go back to Jerusalem, the city of his ancestors, where the people were suffering greatly after devastating events left them living poor, scared and few in number. Nehemiah had been head of security for King Artaxerxes, but the people there now had no security or safety because the walls were demolished and the gates had been burned with fire. So they were easy prey for raiders and robbers and the rulers of other nations and tribes around them who hated the Jews. God stirred up Nehemiah's heart to help. He got permission, protection and full provision from the king to go and be the new governor. And once in place, he inspired and, in, and instructed and organised the people there to rebuild with him. Despite opposition and discouragement, those who stepped up together to build are now halfway there, in fact over halfway there by the time we get to chapter 5 of what is really we've seen, his journal of how the work progressed. The enemies thought that they'd given, they would have given up by now, but instead he set a guard day and night and they focused not on their fears but on the Lord, working with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And by now it was their enemies who started to lose heart instead. But then a big problem came along that threatened everything. Not an external enemy, but an internal one. One that is unseen. One we find it very easy to see in others, but very hard to see in ourselves. The problem of greed. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, wrote, Some years ago, I was doing a seven-part series of talks on the seven deadly sins at a men's breakfast. My wife, Kathy, told me, I'll bet the week you deal with greed, you'll have your lowest attendant. She was right. People packed out for lust, wrath, even for pride, but nobody thinks they are greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul and people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money god's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. Wow. In the first half of this chapter, Nehemiah describes how the harsh economic conditions in the nation were being exploited by some of the leaders, wealthy people from the nobility who were intent on lining their own pockets rather than rebuilding the walls. Now, of course, this is Bible days, and I'm sure we live in far more enlightened times where that kind of thing would never, ever happen right now. But then, the ordinary people were tired out from Hard labour, drained by the strain of constant attacks, living in fear and didn't have enough for the bare essentials. They had to work on the wall so they couldn't work the land. But rather than help them, their own leaders got richer and richer as they raised taxes, exploited and extorted the people, adding huge interest onto the debts that they therefore accrued. Now, of course, we know from people that we help here at Ivy, especially but not only through the work that we do with CAP, that many are already having to make the choice between heating and eating, but 
just as it is now, back in Nehemiah's day, when they were hungry and desperate, they took on more and more debt. And that spiraled, as it so often did, when the system is against you. Soon they were losing their homes. Taxes and interests and loans just went higher and higher. The next generation was affected. They started to have to sell their children. The people came and said to Nehemiah, our sons and daughters are being sold into slavery with no way to buy them back. All because the, the greed of those at the top was, was taking it all for themselves and keeping it. Those who were called the nobles were not noble at all. Now, under the law of God, he had set up in scripture something centuries ago that, that should have meant this would never happen because while debt was allowed, it was only short term. Every seventh year, his people were commanded to observe what was called the Jubilee, where debts were forgiven and, and people were enslaved as a, as, a, as a result were set free. It would happen every seventh year and, it would be, and on the 50th year would be the Jubilee year. Now this year is a Jubilee year for us too, isn't it? For the world's most famous woman, who's also perhaps Britain's greatest evangelist. I'm old enough to remember the street parties for the Silver Jubilee when I was 12 and the whole country celebrated the Golden Jubilee for 50 years of the Queen's reign in 2002. And I have to admit, I'm a big fan of the Queen, mostly because every year in her Christmas speech, which she writes herself, rather than just having to read out formally what's put in front of her by the government, she always wants to talk about the King of Kings, her saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. In her very first Christmas broadcast in 1952, before she was crowned, she said, pray for me that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making and that I may faithfully serve him and you all the days of my life. And since then, you're gonna find her at church just about every Sunday. And a favorite theme of many of those Christmas speeches time and time again is Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, which he said reminds us of our duty to our neighbor and that we should always try to follow Christ's clear instruction. At the end of the story, go and do likewise. After one very hard year recently, the Queen said, I hope that like me, you will be comforted by the example of Jesus of Nazareth, who often in circumstances of great adversity managed to live an outgoing, unselfish and sacrificial life. He makes it clear that genuine human happiness and satisfaction live more in giving than receiving, more in serving than in being served. In 2012, she even finished by inviting people to give Jesus their hearts, as she's done, using the words of, that, of the carol in the bleak midwinter. She said, what can I give him? Give my heart. That's what he wants. Last Sunday, Her Majesty became the first British monarch to celebrate a platinum jubilee, marking 70 years of service to the UK and the Commonwealth. And there's going to be a four-day UK bank holiday weekend at the start of June. And one thing I'd love us to go crazy generous for from what comes in through the first fruits that you give today is that we want to put on fantastic community building, outreach and celebration platinum parties here in Didsbury and across the whole grounds at Cheadle Hume. Join in too. Let's have street parties all over the place connecting food and fun and faith in Jesus so that we make clear we're celebrating the one who reigns forever in our Jubilee celebrations. But the leaders in Jerusalem were not celebrating or observing Jubilee. They were not forgiving debts. They were not setting people free. Instead, they were enslaving them and their children in debt and bondage for their own benefit. And they were fattening themselves and their purses up while holding on to the land, holding on to the houses and the money and the slaves because of greed. Now, 
Nehemiah found out. How does he deal with their greed? Look what he writes about how he felt. Verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. I thought about it and spoke sharp words to the rulers and leaders. I said to them, you are making the people pay back more money than you give them to use. So I gathered many people together against them and I said to them, as we have been able, we have bought and freed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. But you would even sell your brothers that they might be sold to us. They were quiet and could not find a word to say. So I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God to stop the nations who hate us from putting us to shame? I, my brothers and my servants are giving them money and grain. Let us stop making them pay back more than they're given. Return to them this very day their fields, vines, olive trees and houses. And also return to them one hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine and oil that you have been making them pay. That's the moment of truth. Greed hides in the heart, Tim Keller said, but now they're confronted with it out in the open. What will they do when Nehemiah wants to make them stop being greedy? About 500 years later, Jesus was going through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem, where a man called Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. He'd become very rich at the expense of his own people in similar greedy ways, and everybody despised him as a result. So I wouldn't therefore describe him as successful, although in monetary terms, he was rich. It seems he had this hole inside he couldn't fill and he wanted to see who Jesus was so much that he climbed a tree to get a better look because a huge crowd was gathering around Jesus. There was no way he could get to see him otherwise, but Jesus stopped, looked straight at him up in the tree and then called him down by name and said, I want to come to your house. Let's have dinner at your place, Zacchaeus. When the Jewish leaders were found out and confronted publicly by Nehemiah's words, they agreed, yes, we'll stop being so greedy. Why? Because they were shamed into it, because they were made to. Verse 12, Nehemiah records, then they said, we will give these back and we'll ask nothing from them. We will do just as you say. And then just to make sure, you got the priests in and made everybody swear on oath that they would do what they'd said that they would do. And it was like, or else, or else God's going to get you. And so they all swore and they did it. And they agreed to release the loans, restore the people and property, as they should have already done for Jubilee. But I don't think that meant that they stopped being greedy. It certainly doesn't mean they started being generous because their policies were forced to change. That doesn't mean their hearts were, their attitudes, because greed hides in hearts. Tim Keller went on to write in the same book, why can't anyone in the grip of greed see it? The counterfeit god of money uses powerful sociological and psychological dynamics. Everyone tends to live in a particular socio-economic bracket and once you're able to afford to live in a particular neighbourhood, you'll find yourself surrounded by quite a number of people who have more money than you. And you don't compare yourself to the rest of the world, you compare yourself to those in your bracket. The human heart always wants to justify itself and this is one of the easiest ways. You say, I don't live as well as him or her or them. My means are modest compared to theirs. You can reason and think like that no matter how lavishly you're living. And as a result, most tend to think of themselves as middle class. 
Only 2% would call themselves upper class, but the rest of the world isn't fooled. When people visit here from other parts of the globe, they are staggered to see the level of materialistic comfort that we've come to view as a necessity. Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex, yet almost nobody thinks they're guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident that it's not a problem for them. Long quote, end quote. Basically, it means there are givers and takers. Which are we? Diagnostic question to see how much greed is hiding in here. Am I a giver or a taker? And in his journal here, Nehemiah goes on after talking to them to take stock of himself, after calling those other leaders to account, he writes about his own attitude to possessions. And I have to conclude he was a giver. He outlines that the normal practices of the government leaders there was to be takers. Verses 15 to 16 says, the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels, which is about a pound, of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. What he's saying is, I wasn't a taker. It's good, good to ask that. Am I a taker? But, but just because I can't think of ways I'm not mistreating people or extorting them for my own gain, doesn't mean I'm not greedy. You see, the real test of greed is generosity. Am I a giver? So Nehemiah takes stock of that too, and he writes it down. There's an inventory here of generosity. And you and I can take stock of whether we are givers too. It's not about whether we feel like we're a generous person or not. We don't have to guess. It's not about feelings. You know whether or not you're a giver. See, I have to do a self-assessment tax return every year, and that tells me exactly. We can just look at our bank statements and see what's coming in and what's going out, and what we're spending on it for ourselves and what we're giving. It will show up in the bank statement. He writes in verse 17, I fed 150 Jews and officials at my table, in addition to those who showed up from the surrounding nations. One ox, six choice sheep, some chickens were prepared for me daily, and every 10 days a large supply of wine was delivered. Even so, I didn't use the food allowance provided for the governor. The people had it hard enough as it was. Now this tells me, Nehemiah had a lot to be generous with, and he was incredibly hospitable. Hundreds of people being well fed every day and he's doing it sacrificially from his own resources, not from what he could make a claim on. He does without to make sure that they don't. Now I don't know about you but that is incredibly challenging to me because most of the time when I look at the figures I put down and the percentage it equates to in relation to the 100% God so graciously gives me, I can feel okay. But that doesn't mean there's a figure of a lid on generosity. It's not a set amount, it's a mindset. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the common standard among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. 
In one of my study Bibles, there's a note on this verse about how Nehemiah lists what he gives away. And in the study Bible at the bottom, it says, in the ancient Near East, it was customary to calculate the expense of a king's establishment, not by the quantity of his money, but by the quantity of his provisions. Wow, do you understand that? Basically what he's saying is, they didn't measure whether you were rich by how much you had, but by how much you gave from what you had. What if God measures us like that too? How does God count rich? The world measures how rich you are by what you own and how much you keep. God measures it by how much you give away. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy, who just took over leading a church, that when he was talking to the people, he said you should command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. See, generosity is not an option. It's the way that God measures rich. His own greatness is measured by how abundantly generous he is and how he gave his only son to save us. One day, a man that everybody around him called the rich young ruler asked Jesus, what do I have to do to get everlasting life? He still wanted to get something. And Jesus looked at him and loved him, but to test whether greed controlled him, he set a test, the generosity test. Are you a giver? He said, sell your possessions, give to the poor, then follow me. But it says instead he walked away. He walked away sad because he had many possessions. Having many possessions is not how God counts rich. Jesus could have called Zacchaeus out for his greed and how he'd conned people and how he was a taker. He knew him and he knew all about him and so did the whole town it seems. He could have been angrily pointed out his greed in front of everybody when he's up in that tree like Nehemiah did. He could have exposed him to shame like those officials were shown up in front of everybody so that they had to stop being takers. But being made to stop being a taker never made anybody a giver. So Jesus said to Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house. Let's eat. Let's share a table. Nehemiah was a giver who shared his table with hundreds of poor people. Would Zacchaeus be willing to share it with one? Zacchaeus lived his whole life up until this point as a taker. He'd got rich at the expense of the poor people until nobody wanted to come to his table until and except Jesus did. And again, he could have said, you get down from that tree and grovel down here in the dirt in front of these people, you lying, greedy, cheating, traitor. Apologise to all these people that you haven't cared for or shared anything with. See, Jesus is God and he could have rightly judged him and said all of that, but he's a saviour. So he said, I want to come to your house. And it says everybody who heard it was astonished because a rabbi, a religious person who cared about his own reputation, would not cross that door. They knew at that time, if I said I'm sharing a meal, that was saying I want to share life with you. I accept you. I want to be your friend. So Luke chapter 19 verse 7 says they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. I don't know about you. I'm really glad that Jesus is a friend of sinners. I'm glad he came to my house and he's never left. All Zacchaeus's possessions never bought him the happiness that he felt from the moment that he met Jesus, who didn't come with a lecture, but came for lunch. And because he's a giver, Jesus brought love and acceptance where everybody else brought condemnation and guilt. That's what Zacchaeus needed most. What happened? Then Zacchaeus, it says, stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half 
of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, and he knew he had, I will pay back four times that amount. Do you know what that was? Not a forced change of behaviour. It was a changed heart, a heart changed by the love of Jesus Christ. Have you invited Jesus to your house? Do it today. Jesus doesn't just want to meet you at church. He wants to come to your house. What difference would it make for Jesus to come to your house today? When Jesus comes to your house, it's meant to change everything. Holy love came into his house and Zacchaeus didn't hear judgment, but he saw the greed that was hiding in his own heart, making him a slave. And he looked how Jesus loved him and he saw a better master, a second chance, another way to stop being a taker, but to live as a giver. I don't know if you've ever cheated anybody out of anything, but he knew that he had. So he took stock and he set about making it right. He was going to pay everybody back and then some to get back his integrity. But then he started to think what Jesus had done. And he calculated what generosity would look like for him from now on. Now that he'd been loved, now that he'd been accepted by Jesus. And he doesn't even know that very soon the next step for Jesus will to go the short distance to Jerusalem and give everything, to shed his last drop of blood to save us. But he thinks, you know what? Half. I'll give him half. Imagine what half of everything that you own looks like. What would half of all you got even this year amount to? See, people have argued with me over this thing called tithing. They say, we're not under law, we're under grace in the New Testament. The teaching that we shouldn't give back 10% is law, not grace. And you know what? That's okay. As long as grace does more than the law would make us do. Because for, for Zacchaeus, grace got him started at 50% not 10%, because now he was free, free from the greed that was his old master, because he called Jesus Christ his Lord. And Jesus said, you know what? Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus didn't even know he was lost until he was found. Has salvation come to your house? Do you know you're found in the love of God? He didn't change and give so that he could be saved, or so that he could be loved, he changed and he gave because he was loved, because he'd been saved. And he, gave, he didn't give so generously because he had to, but because Jesus had come, come to his house because salvation forever had come to his house. I can give now. He gave because he was free. He gave because he could. He gave because of the love that he'd received. So much love that changed his heart. He gave just because he wanted to. He gave because he was a giver. And now, you and I, we get to give too. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org media.